What an inspiring and encouraging set of scriptures for us today, right? Well, in reality, we should be encouraged. Our conversation today is really going to be about hope. It's going to be about hope that though sin has caused destruction and havoc in our world, God has a rescue plan in place for humanity. And here's the amazing thing about that rescue plan. That rescue plan did not begin in the Gospels. That rescue plan didn't start when baby Jesus was laid in the manger. The rescue plan for humanity, for each of us, has its roots and its beginning in the book of Genesis. See, the purpose of this whole series that that we're working ourselves through is to help us connect the dots, to help us understand how this Genesis story is our story. How it's not just this this random collection of unrelated stories that that were important maybe back then but don't really apply to us today. That's, That's not true. This story, Genesis is the grand story of God's rescue plan. For all of humanity. These stories are our stories. And although they are ancient, I absolutely believe that they still apply to us today. So last week we started with the creation story, if you'll remember. And and Rick talked to you guys about how uh, Genesis is this beautiful prelude and and it helps us understand God's intent for creation. That his intent was that it would be beautiful and it would be good and it it was holy and it was God in relation with us and and, in in his very presence. And how it had a structure and an intention to it. In fact, that creation was perfect. And we're going to continue on in that story today, but uh, as Rick said last week, and as I'll continue to say, we, we want you to understand uh, not only the truth in Genesis, but the flow and the structure of Genesis. And so we want you to understand the major characters. And so before we move forward, I thought it would be important for us to review the dots that we're trying to connect. And I've got a little cheat sheet up here for you to help us uh, stay on point. And so uh, we talked about last week that Genesis starts with the creation story of Adam and Eve. But from there we move to Noah and the flood. And that's what we're going to be talking about primarily today is Noah and the flood. And then it moves from there to the patriarch of our faith, to Abraham. Now, Abraham is really important. And that's why we're going to uh, use our, our, our best guns next week. Uh, I'm going to be sitting in the pews learning and benefiting. We're going to be bringing Roman and Rick in to talk about uh, Abraham because it is crucial for us as believers to understand Abraham in order to understand our faith. So I'm looking forward to that next week. I'm going to be sitting and receiving next week. But from Abraham, we go to Isaac, and then we go to Jacob and Joseph. These are the major characters and our story of Genesis. And I really want to encourage you, as Rick has encouraged you, to, to, to memorize these major characters in their proper order. Because the more that you understand them and, and have them memorized, the more you can be motivated to actually apply them. And make the truth that they've exhibited a truth for you as well. 
And we also talked about last week that Genesis is divided into two major categories or, or sections. Now, there's a lot of subsections that, that we could uh, get into, but we're not going to today. We're just going to look at two primary categories. The first is Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Uh, most scholars refer to that section of Scripture as prehistory. So we can't truly date those stories. Uh, they're, they're the oldest stories in the Bible, but we can't actually date them because they're prehistory. And then the second set of chapters that we have is Genesis 12 through 50, the second half of Genesis. And it's at that point that we can actually start dating historical events and things that are taking place in Genesis. And so that's the second section of Genesis that we need to understand. Now, let's get back to the garden for just a moment, the Garden of Eden. Just go back there with me and, and think about this. It was a perfect creation. Adam and Eve were living in paradise. Their existence was focused on joy and pleasure and living in the presence of a benevolent and passionate and loving God. And not only that, but this same God deemed them kings and queens of his realm. They had authority to subdue and rule and oversee God's creation. And that was really God's plan for creation. We, we heard it last week. Sandra Richter said it best. She said that, the, that God's essential plan was that the people of God would be in the place of God, dwelling in the presence of God. That was God's design. That was God's hope. That was God's intent. That's what he wanted from the moment that he spoke light into existence. And it's also at that moment that God took an incredible risk. He took an incredible risk when he created the world and when he created humans in his image. Any guesses what that risk was? It was love. God took the risk of engaging in love and a relationship of love with his creation. Now, love seems pretty innocent enough, but in order for there to be love, it is required that there is also choice. You can have loyalty without choice. You can be forced into loyalty, but you cannot be forced into love. And so in order for God to have this loving relationship with his creation, he had to create an environment where there was a choice. And that's essentially what God did. He gave Adam and Eve the choice to choose his world or reject it. He gave Adam and Eve the choice to be faithful or to rebel. God, in his passion and love for us, gave us free will within his divine sovereignty. He did not force us to obey his will. He gave us the choice. He gave Adam and Eve the choice to obey. And essentially, that's God's first covenant with humanity. It's the Adamic covenant. God said, I will give you all of this. He's talking to Adam and Eve. He's like, I'm going to give you all of this. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be fulfilling. It's going to be full of pleasure and satisfaction. You're going to be in relationship with me if you will be faithful to this covenant. But God, as any loving father would, he also warned his creation and said, if you do not obey this covenant, there are consequences. If you, undo, if you do indeed eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and rebel against me, you will suffer death. 
And see, as Christians, we need to understand that not just the Adamic covenant, but covenant in general. Uh, covenant is a binding idea that we find throughout all of Scripture. This sense of, of covenant, of commitment. And we're going to talk more about that next week. The pressure's really on Rick and, and Roman to get that right. But uh, for me today, I, I want to talk a little bit about covenant because I think it's so important. I want us to have a basic understanding today. See, a covenant is an agreement or a legal commitment between two or more parties. And there's really no better illustration because this is the illustration that God, that Jesus chose to use to describe covenant, and that was marriage. See, God could think of no better illustration for the relationship that he desires to have with you and with me than this, to lift up marriage and say, I want to have a relationship with you that is like this. That for the betterment of my bride, I, the husband, make a lifelong commitment to you. And for the betterment of the husband, I, the bride, I'm committing to you as well. So there's this mutual commitment for the betterment of the other, not for a season, not for a little while, not until it gets difficult, but for a lifetime. That's what we're talking about when we talk about covenant. God looks at Adam and Eve and says, if you will commit to me in this way and I commit to you in this way, the results, the fruit will be good. But if you choose to rebel, you'll experience death. You see, the Bible has covenant language throughout it, this same idea of this, this mutual commitment. In fact, it's structured around covenant. We have to understand that the ancient world and the Bible were and are built around covenant, this relational commitment. So in addition to us understanding the major characters of Genesis, I think it's also important, uh, all of us on the writing team think it's important that we also understand the, the major covenants of, of Scripture. And there, there are five in the Old Testament, and there's one in the New Testament. And so uh, we're going to help you out this morning because we think that it would be good, just as we memorize the major characters in their proper order, that we also invest the time to memorize those, those covenants in their proper order. And so uh, the first three covenants are already on display for you. You have the uh, creation covenant or the Adamic covenant. You have the covenant through Noah. You have the covenant through Abraham. Now I'm about to blow your minds. We got real fancy over here. We have the covenant with Moses. The Davidic covenant. And the supreme covenant of all, the covenant that came through Christ. So we'd encourage you as you memorize these major characters that you would take the time and invest the time to memorize these major covenants as well. Now, I don't know if you noticed something, but I believe having a conversation about covenant illustrates how important it is, how crucial it is for us to actually understand Genesis. These first three major covenants have their roots, have their beginning in the book of Genesis. Half of the major covenants begin and are first spoken and illustrated in the book of Genesis. That's why we believe it's so crucial for us as believers to understand that book, the book of Genesis. So let's get back to the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, we have that first great covenant that God makes with us, but we all know the outcome. We, we read it in, in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God, and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And although the consequences, as God said, for that rebellion, for breaking that covenant was death, we see that God was merciful. He didn't kill Adam and Eve 
uh, but there was a death. You can read in the text in Genesis 3.21, it says that God made garments of skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So an animal gave its life. An animal's blood was shed in order to cover the shame or one of the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion. That wasn't the only consequence. That wasn't the only result of our sin. There are many more, and I want to go through those quickly with you. Uh, The first that we see is that the serpent or Satan or the curse or the great deceiver or uh, the the name that I like to identify him with is the accuser of the brethren. He was cursed, and it's that curse that we see the first prophecy of God's future plan of rescue for humanity. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put an amenity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will strike your head, or excuse me, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Other translations say he will crush your head and he will strike your heel. That probably didn't mean a whole lot then, but now that we are beyond the cross, we understand that this prophecy was indeed fulfilled through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Satan, the great deceiver, thought he had struck a death blow by means of Christ's crucifixion, but indeed Christ crushed the head of our accuser by being resurrected and overcoming death for our sake. But there were other curses as well. We, we can read that, that the ground was cursed, that the ground was no longer going to freely give up or freely produce what was necessary for sustaining life, that it was going to be a challenge, it was going to be difficult, that thorns and thistles and weeds were going to come up as well and make life more difficult due to the curse. But if you'll read closely, you'll notice that Adam and Eve were never cursed. But that didn't mean that they were exempt from feeling the weight of the penalty for the breaking of the covenant. They experienced pain and they experienced loss. And the consequence for both Adam and Eve uh, that was produced, that that pain that was produced, it was equal for each of them. In fact, uh, the Hebrew term that's used to describe pain and sorrow is the same in both consequences. So as, as we just hear pain used in one and sorrow in the other, we can, we can see through the, the interpretation of Hebrew that it's roughly the same experience and equal experience for both of them. But I want to take a moment to look at what both of them experienced. For Eve, it says in the text that, that in pain she will bring forth children and that her desire will be for her husband and that her husband will rule over her. In the instance that that sin entered the world, we see a breaking of the marital relationship as a consequence. Because see, if you look at the text, originally, God's original intent for the man and the woman, for the husband and the wife, was for them to be co-laborers or co-rulers or have co-responsibility in subduing the earth. But moments after sin enters the equation, we see the the partnership, the relationship, degrade to a competition for control. We see once sin enters the equation that they go from co-laborers to battling in resentment towards one another. We see God's intent marred and broken. This this original idea of being co-laborers and equal partners is broken with tension and resentment and competition for control. 
But Adam was no different. Adam suffered consequences as well. It says that by the sweat of his brow, he will labor. And I think you're probably like me. Uh, for, most of, for most of my life, I just kind of assumed that that meant that, that, that David was going to, excuse me, David, that Adam was going to have to work hard. And that was kind of his punishment. But if you sit back and think about that, I don't think God in his infinite wisdom would ever use hard work as a means of punishment. I think most of us in this room have experienced the satisfaction and the sense of fulfillment and the sense of purpose by a job well done, even as we wipe sweat from our brow. So I don't think that was what God was trying to say. In fact, uh, there's evidence that, that this phrase is actually an ancient idiom that speaks about anxiety. That what God was really trying to, to communicate to us, the intent of that phrase, was that Adam would pursue production or pursue uh, growth with anxiety and fear. That as he goes through the field and he's planting seed, there's a fear that he will have to battle. What if it doesn't rain? Am I, am I planting enough seed? Have I, have I made my field wide enough? Have I made my field too wide? What if the crops don't come in? What if I lose my job? What if I can't afford the doctor bill? See, the, the, the sense is that, that David would move forward to try to fulfill his responsibility with a, with a haunting sense of, I don't know if it will be enough. We also see that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and, and they quickly started a family. And we see there that sin rapidly escalates from that point of view. In one generation, well, let's, let's, start, let's go back. In one moment, in the, in the first few moments of Adam and Eve's rebellion, we see a fracture in the marital relationship. We see them go from being co-equals to struggling and drowning in resentment. In one generation, we go from that to murder. In one generation. One generation away from Adam and Eve's rebellion, we have Cain and Abel, and Cain murdering his brother Abel. See, sin is, is rapidly degrading God's perfect creation and is wreaking havoc on God's original intent for relationships between uh, man and wife, relationship between man and God, and relationship between man and creation, and relationship between man and his brother. Everything is suffering from the consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Because we see right on the hills of this story, we have this random story of a man named Lamech who actually boasts of having more than one wife. Can you get a sense that he has devalued women to the point that they are things to be accumulated and to be celebrated instead of something to be loved and be in a mutual relationship with? Again, it's a breaking down a destruction, a marring. And he goes on from there to, to proudly proclaim and celebrate that he handled a wrongdoing with another person by simply killing them. Sin is destroying God's original intent for creation. And we can see from the text that it gets worse and worse. In Genesis 6, 5 through 8, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only 
evil continually, and that the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and that it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings that I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. See, Noah was living in this world. He was living in this world that was characterized by continual sin. That the heart of everyone was only on evil all the time. You ever felt that way when you're scrolling through your Facebook? You ever felt that way when you watch the news? This was the existence that, that Noah was living in, and yet he chose to be a light shining forth in the darkness. And God saw that light. Because look how God responded to the wickedness and the evil. He wants to start over. He wants to wipe the slate clean and begin again. But again, we see a glimpse of mercy in the midst of God's judgment, in the midst of great evil. We see a glimpse of grace in the midst of a broken world where it says that Noah found favor. Despite the wickedness, Noah found favor. In God's sight. Thank God for Noah. Because at this point, God's rescue plan for humanity is now moving through the family of Noah. And we all know that story. We, we heard uh, Kim allude to it earlier. Uh, and, it, and it is an ancient story. It's in that section of, of scripture that we call prehistory. And one thing that you might find fascinating or interesting is that the book of Genesis is not the only book that has a worldwide great flood narrative or story. There's lots of them. There's lots of them that were collected and are told throughout that same area of Mesopotamia. Uh, The most famous of them is the uh, Gilgamesh epic. Maybe some of you guys got that for Christmas. I don't know if you got that book. It's a great, great read. Uh, The Gilgamesh epic, which actually dates back to 2600 B.C. And all of these flood stories that tell a a similar narrative. There's some significant changes. Uh, One being that that in these other narratives, the pagan gods are actually seeking to destroy humanity by the flood, and somehow uh, there's this this hero that escapes a flood through the ark, and the gods repent from trying to destroy humanity because they needed slaves. What were we thinking? Killing humanity. We need slaves. We need things to entertain us and do what we want. That's the narrative that you hear in uh, these stories that are told by these other civilizations. But the flood story of Noah is vastly different theologically than these other flood stories. In fact, uh, with Noah, the point of the flood is destruction of evil, but there's hope as well. You see God's rescue plan for humanity. You see that God saves Noah with the hope of an ultimate rescue for the human race, an ultimate cleansing and purifying of his creation. We see the mercy of God in the midst of his judgment. You don't see that in the other flood stories. In other flood stories, these gods are just on a whim deciding to destroy mankind and then repent because they realize that they need slaves. They need servants. So we see that God has Noah build a boat, bring in the animals, 
And then God brings a great flood to destroy the, destroy the entire world. And that is brutal. There is no turning away from that. That is a brutal story. But I think it illustrates the brutal destruction and compromise that sin has caused God's creation. I mean, if you think about it, when you get a cancer diagnosis, you don't say, just take a little bit of it out. Just take a little bit of it out. No, when, when you have that cancer diagnosis, you want it all removed because of the risk of it returning. So a serious diagnosis requires a serious response. And I think that's what we see with this story of Noah after 40 days and 40 nights, the rain falls. His family and the animals, are, Noah and his family are safe in the ark. The rain finally stops. Their dry land appears, and Noah and his family exit the ark. And that's when the new beginning begins. So let's go there in Genesis 9, 1 through 17. It says that God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As for me, I am establishing, here's an important word, establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, and never again shall there be a flood that destroys the earth. God said, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall, rain, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Do you notice the similar language there? Once Noah and his family leave the ark, God says the same thing to Noah and his family that he originally said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and spread throughout the earth. Here's, here's, the, here's a significant difference, though. When God originally said it to Adam and Eve, they were perfect. When he said it to Noah and his family, he was making a covenant commitment to a fallen humanity. A broken humanity that God was full aware had the capacity for more rebellion and more sin. And God, and still God said, I will never completely destroy you. God made a commitment through Noah for the rescue of humanity, even though we were fallen. So how does that connect to you and me? How does that story of Adam and Noah, how does that connect to our lives? Well, I hope that you see that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is a promise-keeping God. He is a covenant-keeping God. And that though we experience every day the pain and the consequence and we suffer the loss in response to Adam and Eve's rebellion and to our own rebellion, God has a rescue plan in place. We should have hope. Even though Adam rebelled, God rescued. Even though Eve rebelled, God rescued. Even though eventually Noah and his descendants rebelled, God had a means of rescue. Yes, this world is broken. Yes, there are consequences to our sin. But we have a God who is faithful to us and has made a commitment to us. Therefore, we should have and so I encourage you this week to take some next steps. I have a couple suggestions for you. You might consider going back and rereading Genesis 1 through 11 now that you have new information. You know, we talked about my Sunday school class uh, not having blind faith but having informed faith. 
You can't have all the answers, but you can have some information to help you process Scripture. So going back, now that you have more information, reading it with new light. Uh, again, memorizing the patriarchs and memorizing the great covenants of Scripture. Uh, or maybe going and having a, an intentional conversation with somebody else who might see Genesis and Adam and Noah different than you. Just have a conversation. You can be agreeable while disagreeing. That's a good habit and a good ability to develop. Or uh, consider, this is the most important, I think, consider how the hope that God produced for Adam or for Noah could help you have hope in a circumstance that you're facing right now? How could God's faithfulness to them inspire your trust that God will be faithful to you? Let's pray.